Ken. And I'm Barbie. And this is the Always the Critic podcast where a couple of friends review the latest movies, except we literally have zero qualifications to do so. Barbie, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Ken. Thank you for asking. We had a big weekend where we actually saw two movies this weekend. Yes. I think a weekend that will go down in, in history as one of the best weekends in film. Oh, for sure. And I it's, can't wait to talk about I it. I can't wait to talk about it either. <laughs> Uh, for those who don't know, have you been living under a rock, number one? <laughs> uh, but number two, that is Barbenheimer. That is two yes. completely different Wildly movies. Wildly different movies. <laughs> that happen to open up on the same weekend. And we're going to talk about them both today. And I'm so excited for this. Uh, but before we get started, if this is your first time listening, go ahead and subscribe to your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. If you like us, go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Five stars goes a long way for us. Come and check us out on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and reviews. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Always Critic Pod. And lastly, if you're a fan, please consider becoming a patron. It's a great way for you to get involved and show your support for as little as $2 a month. You can check out the page on patreon.com slash alwayscriticpod. And shout out to our patrons, Curtis, Bale, Cindy, CD, Alana, Grace, Lorna, Lee, Sammy, and Caitlin. Thank, Thank you, guys. you so much. Very, very appreciative of that. Yes. Now, uh, so today we are going to talk about two different movies, and we're going to talk about them in the way that we saw them. True. In the order that we saw them. And I don't know if this was the right order, like if, if we would have watched it the same day, but uh, we are going to start with Barbie, and then we're going to get into Oppenheimer. Yep. And so we saw Barbie on Wednesday. Uh, we saw it at the Barbie blowout party. Uh, so this was like a, an early screening, basically just a day ahead, really. And everything was geared towards Barbie. There was no trailers. It no. was just all Barbie material. So, uh, Jessica. Yo. Barbie, Barbie. Would you let us know I'm what Barbie. the movie Barbie is about? I will. The IMDb synopsis reads, Barbie suffers a crisis that leads to her leads her to question her world and her existence. Yes, this movie is directed by Greta Gerwig. She has directed Lady Bird and Little Women. So she is back behind the camera. She also co-wrote this movie with her uh, life partner and writing partner, uh, Noah Baumbach. Power couple. Power couple. Uh, Noah Baumbach is known for uh, Marriage Story, the Meyerowitz stories, um, story in his titles quite a bit i was gonna say yeah i know right uh so it it is truly uh a difference of a couple as well coming together for this and this movie stars a lot of people everybody uh, everybody we're gonna be saying the same thing about Oppenheimer, but this movie stars margot robbie Issa ray kate mckinnon alexandra ship emma mackey harry neff sharon rooney Anna Cruz Kane, Ritu Aria Dua Lipa, uh, <laughs> Nicola Coughlin, uh, and all of them play Barbie. <laughs> all of those people I just mentioned play Barbie. And then on the other side, we have Ryan Gosling, we have Simu Liu, we have Kingsley Ben Adir, we have Nkuti Gatwa, Scott Evans, and John Cena, and they all play Ken. <laughs> <laughs> You're missing Will Ferrell, I think. Will Ferrell, America yeah. Ferreira yeah. also are uh, very vital points of this movie as well. 
But the thing is, it's hard to fit so many names in this dock because of how <laughs> loaded. We're going to have that problem with Oppenheimer. I'll show you. So, just Jessica, how did this do at the box office? I'll tell you. Box office, $162 million domestic since opening for a wow. grand total of $337 million worldwide. So, it's already doubled its budget. Huge. Huge opening. I don't think Warner Brothers... Even in their wildest dreams, a couple months ago would have like they probably would have been happy with seventy five. Mm-hmm. They probably would have been yeah for an opening for Barbie, but this is huge. The marketing was an all out assault. I loved it. It, was it felt crazy. like I was watching because I was telling like we had all these conversations beforehand that this type of marketing campaign was so all encompassing. It felt like a fucking Star Wars movie right, was coming exactly. out. Exactly. You know, it was everywhere. It was on the grocery shelves. You'd go to, uh, you know, Target and Walmart. Of course, there was Barbie everywhere. You went to freaking Cold Stone. They had a Barbie ice cream. It was everywhere. I was watching HDTV with my mom. Yes, and in they the had corner, a Barbie dream Yeah, they had thing. a Barbie dream house, like entire special. But then every, you know, every show... You know how they have the little animation down at the yeah. bottom of something? And it yeah, was yeah. like an advertisement for the Barbie movie coming out. Uh, so it was everywhere. 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 <laughs> and that number at the box office proves that the marketing worked. People were going in droves. People were wearing pink everywhere. I was mm-hmm. wearing pink when I went yep. to see the movie. Uh, and on top of that, <laughs> it was critically received well and by audience as well 91 percent from the critics 90 percent from the audience score uh according to critics their consensus was that barbie is a visually dazzling comedy whose meta humor is smartly complemented by subversive storytelling so with all that said yeah jessica what were your thoughts on barbie well i'm so glad you asked because I loved it, to put it mildly. I think that it was really brilliant and clever. The script was amazing, I thought. The dialogue and the comedy were top-notch. The references that they put in there were very timely and too close to home. It seems that Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig had their finger on the pulse of pop culture. And so they get it, they're immersed, and that's what this movie showed. The production design and all of the people that brought the Barbies and Kens to life, this Barbie dreamland, <laughs> it's amazing. It was amazing, okay? Like, I appreciate all the behind-the-scenes stuff that people saying. We had endless meetings on the color pink, and obviously we pulled all of these costumes from the Mattel Barbie expansive line of of clothes and things that have been produced for Barbie over the years. And I think that they have managed to uplift a brand that people had a lot of issues with over the years, a brand that people thought was maybe too problematic. And um, in the same way that maybe Disney princesses are looked at as being more problematic today than they ever were. Right. 
the movie felt like a celebration of women, a love letter to femininity, and it was a deep cut on the conflicting nature of womanhood. Mm. And it had so much to say. It was a bunch of social commentary on the patriarchy, especially. And I think that what's a, I guess what's not surprising is being immersed in social media after coming out of the movie is that a lot of guys, men, Oof. did not get it. Yo. Like, did not get it. The simplicity <laughs> of these men's minds of not understanding the nature of the story is just flabbergasting sometimes. But then, you know, you start like just seeing just what they talk about in post. Then, then you're like, oh, OK, now I see why you don't get it. Um, you're yeah. a bigot. You hate women. It's yeah, okay. pretty much. You it's know. OK. Um, it really wasn't meant for you. And I think a lot of... <laughs> baseline film criticism is like was this for me and what can i glean from it if it wasn't for me and a lot of people (laughs) did not even go that that far of like hey i think i missed something let me ask some questions let me delve deeper this is what i picked up on please like i'd love to hear what you thought yeah what did you think because this was not made for me right right in, in this particular case, yeah, I. <laughs> it's okay, am a Ken and it's okay. In this case, to so, be just again. <laughs> so for me, I walked into the movie with a sense of I know there's got to be something more than what the advertising and the marketing is selling us. Right, because um, I I felt the same way that it was right. going to be smarter than yes, even the promos because of the fact that I have such trust in Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach that they're not going to just half-ass it they're not going to just sit there and take all the notes from a studio and then just give us like a here it is you know uh just a very simple story no they were going to make a comment they were going to talk about issues Mm -hmm. all behind a facade of a dream house and i think they nail it you know Mm um i think at the beginning it kind of feels like they're like really ham fisting the point of it. But that's sometimes necessary. Like just to get the point across of like, hey, this is a movie. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to say is that uh, women. If you think to- it's ridiculous. <laughs> if you think it's <laughs> Let ridiculous. me tell you something about the real world. <laughs> exactly. And the fact that, you know, it's shining a light on how the real world works, you know, where men are in charge and lately and even the movie comments on it it's like you know i thought we were in charge it's like yeah we're still are we're just trying to hide it better type of thing um and it's it's so smart in the way it goes about talking to the audience about hey these are the things that are happening in the real world and Women deserve a voice. They deserve to be cared for. They deserve to be listened to. They deserve to have their dreams, their thoughts, their imaginations be listened to and cared for. And and this movie shows, you know, how wor- the world's working. But at the same time, it ends on, you know, like a, a bittersweet moment. And I really walked out of there thinking, wow, that was a clever funny smart movie that is easily in like top five so far for this year yeah easy easy 
Um, the set design, production design, I love the world of Barbie Land. Mm-hmm. It is, and it's done practically, so everything is made for the the spot. I love the use of color in the movie. Outside of just the pink, just everything that surrounds Barbie is so colorful and so in your face. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love the character choices. Like obviously Margot Robbie, she's fantastic. It's like mm-hmm. she was perfectly made to be Barbie. She is Barbie. She is Barbie. Uh, her press tour has been incredible with her. The looks that she's yeah, been serving. Looks. Yeah, please. the different Barbie looks. Please. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, Ryan Gosling, a great Ken. What a fantastic Ken. Yes, fantastic Ken. He was great in this in this role. He was great. Yeah. yeah. And overall, I just love the... The Barbies basically kind of like banding together without giving away anything, but banding together and making each other realize that they are important and mm-hmm. they deserve to be viewed equally. So, yeah, there's a lot more that I really want to say, but I feel like it's spoiler territory. Yeah, it is. So it's going to be tough to kind of talk about it. So before we get into spoilers, though, uh, just I guess a couple of like little random things. Uh, soundtrack. Bitch. Okay. So this <laughs> OST. <laughs> this OST. Wasn't ready for that, but okay. Sure. Because I came into this thinking that there could not be a better OST for this film year than Across, Across the Spider-Verse. The Spider-verse. Yep. And then Barbie was like, I'd like to have a word. And that's what happened. This OST snuck in mm-hmm. not so stealthily because it was just head to toe in hot pink right and it blasts i adore the door. it <laughs> it blasts through the door i love it i love the dua lipa song i love the Nicki minaj song i love the ice spice feature i love the the charlie xcx song which yes. has been on repeat that's a good one i love the charlie I xcx really, song i really like choose your fighter Ava Max. Yes, I love Ava Max. I love. I told myself I was driving somewhere. My sister was riding shotgun, and the song came on shuffle because, of course, I'm shuffling through this entire album. Yeah. And I go, I love Ava Max. Me too. I don't know why. Like, I love Ava Max. I need to really dive deep on her stuff. She has her album. uh, I think she's only had one album. Maybe she's had two. I'm not sure. But her album, I had that album on repeat, (laughs) and it is like a female power album. Like. Check it out. It's it's. Really I love her good. voice. I love her tone. Yeah, me too. I love the style. It's like very much the same vein as Charlie XCX, but like really powerful mm-hmm. vocals. And again, I love the Max song, the freaking Billie Eilish song. Ugh. We got to talk about I, that more. What was I made for? Which went hand in hand with this amazing third act moment that we'll talk about in the spoiler section. Showstopper. Yeah, it is. I love Billie Eilish talking about how she came up with it because it was very much a personalized experience. There weren't a bunch of studio executives coming to her and talking about producing a song for the movie. It was very personalized. A text between her, Phineas, and Greta, and like one other producer. Mark Ronson. Mark Ronson of all people, for the movie, (laughs) (laughs) most one of the most iconic producers that we have today, and 
you know, they went to the studio on the Warner Brothers lot and saw rough cuts of the movie. They had Greta Gerwig talking them through everything and just through her sheer passion and the footage that they had, they cranked out this amazing song. Yes. And it it's such a great song, such a great use of it in the moment that mm-hmm. it comes out mm-hmm. in. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Now, one thing I will say, and again, this I'm, I'm not going to talk deep about it, is that I feel as though the middle of the movie, like the second act, does feel a little bit jumbled. Uh, there, It feels like there's a couple of too many things going on. Maybe if I you take out one, it feels good. I don't necessarily agree with you, but I will say that the stuff that's outside of Barbie Land is not my favorite stuff. It's good, not great. Right. Best thing, best choice that Greta Gerwig made was to place the bulk of the story in Barbie Land. In Barbie Land, yes. That that was the best choice for sure. And we'll talk more about that. Uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to mention before we get into spoilers on Barbie? I think this is going to be a really formative movie for a lot of people. Mm. I think it's bringing the sisterhood together, so to speak. It is for the girlies and the gays to me, and there have been a number of other Barbie movies that I consider Barbie movies now that I'm thinking through the themes of the movie and the way that it makes me feel. Movies like Legally Blonde, Mm, Wonder Woman, A League of Their Own, Thelma and Louise, Booksmart, Practical Magic, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, Little Women, Pride and Prejudice, Charlie's Angels, Steel Magnolias. These are movies about women for women, sisterhood, and they can be considered dramas on an Oscar level scale, or they can be reduced by right. the toxic <laughs> men in in you know film criticism and beyond to be just you know chick flicks this isn't for <laughs> the wide masses but i think that barbie sort of bridged this divide where i feel like everybody's going out to see barbie everyone everyone's been going to- the numbers are speaking this isn't just <laughs> you know ladies going to see it i really feel like this is everyone and it's good word of mouth and this will only get better the numbers will only get better for barbie yeah for sure and i was telling you after the theater experience of watching both the movies so this is after we watched oppenheimer i said i can totally see myself purchasing barbie on blu-ray and 4k oh for sure easily it's so rewatchable it really is it's very rewatchable and yeah i can't wait to see the effects that this movie has going forward Mm. for my hope is that we would see more female directors and writers and more people behind Uh the scenes that get elevated to a prominent level like the way Greta Mm -hmm. Gerwig has the way Patty Jenkins has Mm -hmm. uh, obviously uh, Catherine Bigelow who you know brought us into this recent era yeah um a couple of little notes before we get into spoilers. Uh, this opening for Barbie is the biggest opening by a female-directed movie. A female-directed movie. Largest ever. opening ever. Uh, the previous one was the uh, aforementioned Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman from 2017. Uh, so great, big things happening. Love it. And finally, I want to ask you, what did you give this movie as a grade? A+. plus. 
Is this I the got... first one of the year that I've given? <laughs> I think this is the first movie you've given an A+. Plus maybe at... Across <laughs> the Spider-Verse, I just said A. I think you might have said maybe? A, and I think I said A+, plus for that one. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, I think I said an A+, plus and you said Barbie's an A. Barbie's A+. Plus. And I gave it an A. So There you go. Yeah, so we, we love this movie, and we're going to dive deep into this movie. Uh, so check out spoilers for Barbie right after this. The greatest trick. Houston, we have a problem. I... Father. I see dead people. The devil ever pulled. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Was convincing the world. You can't handle the truth. He didn't exist. Oh, what's in the box? All right, let's go ahead and let's talk spoilers for Barbie. Uh, so, Jessica, uh, should we just start at the beginning of the movie and kind of no? Work I'm going to commandeer this or, thing. So, go ahead. I, <laughs> I have some notes here, and. I would love your opinion on some of these things. I'm just going to spitball. So first of all, you said you wore the color pink. I did. Everybody wore pink. Yes. To the theater. Yes. I have not seen this much pink out and about ever in my life. Never, no. The color pink is such a divisive and highly gendered color. Mm -hmm. Because of how society has defined pink, so many women and of course men just outright reject pink. Yeah. As their favorite color for wearing it out and about. But I think the Barbie movie has made the color pink cool again. And it reconnected the audience to this love of pink and pink just as being this fun and vivacious color of youth and hopes and dreams. And yes, femininity, but I think it's more proud femininity. Yes, I I very much agree. And I will say that uh, something that struck me is that this movie brought back um and i hadn't seen it in such a long time uh like fandom in everybody sharing in the fandom mm. by wearing the pink mm -hmm. uh, i think that when you see big movies temple movies you'll have people with, with t-shirts from whatever you know movie we're gonna watch or whatever star wars marvel dc all that you start seeing those and you see them pretty often maybe a couple people actually dressed up but because, like you said, pink is such a powerful color. This thing is, it was like a sea of pink mm -hmm. in certain theaters. Mm -hmm. And it was so cool to see because, like, again, something that is made more geared towards the female audience, having the fans show up in, in a way like that, mm -hmm. you know, with mm -hmm. the color and really get in, getting into it was really cool to see it made me emotional and it was very much like a healing thing where i don't know why like you just grow to hate the color pink me personally as well mm -hmm. and to feel it so much i don't know why i'm getting really emotional <laughs> but yeah um so pink and then i guess i kind of want to jump to barbie land and what it is mm-hmm because, I mean, I don't know how you saw it. <laughs> I bet you saw it very much the same way. But uh, Barbie World is this utopia. Yes. For women. Yeah. This matriarchy that op operates in this satirical opposite way to the real patriarchal world. And it's so fun to see the power and the community given to women, the way everyone is so different, but the same. Everyone is Ken or Barbie, basically. Yeah. 
And to me, it also seemed to poke fun at the way that we might, or even just men might generalize and say, all women are the same. Well, in this world, they literally are all Barbie, but each so distinct and each blessedly lovelier than the the last. Yes. And each one has their own thing that they do. Mm -hmm. Each one. Now, Ken, not so much. Ken is just Ken, regardless of whether it's Gosling or Simu Liu Mm -hmm. or uh, Kingsley Benadir. They are just Ken because this world is the utopia, like you said, for women. And they get to not only do everything, but they are in control of everything. And and uh, because of the fact that their their ideas, they feel that they are the spark for the real world they mm-hmm. believe that hey we what they we're fix doing here, all the world's problems yeah by just see, existing by just existing and i can't wait till we talk about you know that what happens when they actually do see what the real world is yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think that the barbie world is i mean barbie the doll represents to me childhood And this dream world where every girl is taught to dream and imagine and aspire to be great. And you can be the president. You can be a pilot. You can be a doctor. You can be anything. And the slogan, I think, now for Mattel's Barbie is, we girls can do anything. Mm. And in this world, it's true. It's true. Yes. And it's only when leaving Barbie land or, to me talking about childhood and stuff when girls go through puberty and grow up that they find that the world isn't pink and colorful and as hopeful as they dreamed mm. you know just how the movie she goes barbie goes through this journey she becomes full of self-doubt self-consciousness she's uh concerned with being put inside a box <laughs> as we see the mattel executives try to do with barbie yep and the pressures of actually being perfect and actually achieving perfection in this patriarchal society are too great and they're, it's too hypocritical. It is hypocritical because I wanted to mention that um, America Ferreira's character, she gives this impassioned speech about what women are, right? I, so I they was mixed with it. Uh Hold on, but before th- before we get into it though, okay. Um, what I was gonna say was, um, taking that that type of uh, narrative of you know how women are viewed, and if you compare to what the men are doing in the movie, they get to have fun and they're they get to live fantasies of like I'm a guy, I have a truck, and this and that and this and that. Um, something that America Ferreira, like for real during the press tour was talking about was there's this a thing in a society where men don't have to actually grow up. Correct. They got their man caves. They can play video games. They can continue living their life as if they're still a team. But women, they're at a certain point. They got to put the toys away. They got to put mm-hmm. this away. They got to mm-hmm. start, you know, they got to start cooking. They got to start doing this and that. And there's a real double standard there of mm-hmm. the way men can interact in 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 world and society versus the way women are supposed and I put that in quotations supposed to act mm-hmm. and so 
so those two things of like what she's saying in the movie and what she said on the press tour kind of brought that to mind of how hypocritical it is that men can kind of continue to do what they've always been doing as teens and but women can't i don't know if you ever had this point in your life but i remember being a child and being more pure of heart Mm -hmm. and thinking the best of people right and i remember the change feeling conscious of myself of my body how it was perceived a boy telling me i ate too fast being anxious all of a sudden and he put these childish notions of i'm good enough just the way i am away Mm. not just your interests in playing with dolls and buying up lisa frank (laughs) folders and and stickers and things you know your world just gets bleached yeah it does um i don't remember when it happened for me but my guess would be that it happened later in my life than it did for you most likely uh because there's a sense of when you're when you're a guy when you're a boy you can continue doing the things that you do from when you were six you can still do them at eight you can still do it at 10 and you can continue and then eventually uh you you get into the puberty where you start thinking about you know other things besides toys and games you start thinking about girls but again girls develop faster so just the thought process comes at a much later pace you know for us than it does for you so you know that feeling of that childhood definitely changed for me i would say more along the lines of uh probably late middle school oh word and the reason why i say that is because (laughs) The reason why I say that is because not because I still felt like a kid, but that is when you finally like realize, oh, I'm not a kid anymore. And yeah, I want to be older and I want to do cool things, whatever. But then there are things that happen that you're just like, oh, I'm not a kid anymore. I can't be doing certain things anymore. But I think that happens for boys later than it does for girls. Even the way you're talking about this, I know we had wildly different. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, Ooh, it, I'm it totally. It is wildly different. And the course. way that Barbie is suddenly like, you know, she comes from Barbie land where she has no genitals. She has no, she's not being sexualized. Everybody feels good in their own skin. Everyone feels wonderful with what they're wearing. And as soon as she comes outside of Barbie land, she's sexualized. She's objectified. She feels uncomfortable and self-conscious. People are ogling at her and can has the complete opposite reaction where he he's does. feeling empowered. Yeah, he is. By the attention. Because he he feels wanted, he feels um more like he's being given something that he wasn't being given before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh and so now And even the feels... undertone of violence that Barbie oh, yeah. mentions. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's real. It's real. It's real. And obviously it, I can't speak as a as a woman so i can only imagine (laughs) how bad it is um obviously i have a i have a younger sister so like you know i become more aware of it you know i was mm -hmm. growing up uh but still i can't speak to it only Mm -hmm. because i i didn't experience it but you i know had to go through it i mean i was barbie in her world she has no mirror no No. vanity mirror when she gets ready 
She doesn't have to see herself to know that she's just right. And I vividly remember being young and feeling like that and having one day looking in the mirror and going, what's going on? And like not being satisfied, picking myself Mm. apart. And, you know, there's no identity crisis in childhood. You know, mirrors in cinema and art always, you're looking at a reflection. It's always something having to do with identity. And there's no mirrors in Barbie land. So they're not dealing with death. They're not thinking about themselves in that way. And there's no self-reflection. There's no growth in Barbie land. No, there isn't. Which that in itself can be like an entire point of the movie. That's a whole thesis that somebody can. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) But you mentioned America's... um, Monologue. Yes. America Ferrer's monologue, which happens way later in the movie. But what I was going to say was that I was of a mixed mind of it because it is very preachy. It is very well written. It is not something that someone can just come up with on the fly. Right. So in that respect, it feels disingenuine. And that is the only nitpick I have for it because I thought it was brilliant. (laughs) I thought it was a very sad monologue about the complexity of, at the end of the day, projecting all of these contradictory and toxic ideals about being a woman onto a doll. Right. And it is it was sad to hear because, again, you know, I, I only imagine it. So but, you know, obviously I have a sister and so i at least know some of it but just knowing that that's something that women go through i'm sorry there was a few tiktoks of people not uh of of i guess husbands or boyfriends asking about like is this real do you feel this way and overwhelmingly they it's true it's true it's true (laughs) so and greta growing is such a wonderful storyteller obviously if you've seen her little women it's a beautiful story that she extrapolated even more from Mm -hmm. um, a text and a a bond and sisterhood that she got even more out of it was gorgeous and i think she's incredibly feeling and there's something really special when someone like that is giving given a budget and given free reign relative free reign because i'm sure there were tons of moments where mattel and warner brothers executives wanted to say no or said no of course but what she did with telling the story and um you know especially with we were just talking about the monologue from america ferrera it's hard to do it is and she did it well she did she did it well um Okay, so can we talk about the the middle act? Because yeah, I would well, say this is, is there anything at the beginning that you wanted to like touch on? Um, I really love how they incorporate so Lizzo's song "Pink" at the beginning. It's on the soundtrack, <laughs> and the way they incorporate it into the action of the movie, like what's going on. It's so she is singing what's happening, and then later on when everything starts going haywire and she's like singing still yeah. and, and it's, it's really funny. Uh, I really enjoy just so much of this world. Barbie land, just 
how mm. how fun and colorful everybody is with one another how everybody just enjoys everybody's company everybody is having fun mm-hmm. uh, obviously we have ryan gosling's ken all he wants is just barbie to pay attention <laughs> to him. that's it that's yeah. all he lives for it's just <laughs> hi barbie and just get a high back you know um so i i really enjoyed that so that that first part is really great setup for the movie to give you like hey we're living great here this is the perfect world you know? again the childhood thing yeah. where you're more concerned with the sleepovers and the girls nights yeah i love when ken's like well i thought i'd stay over and she's like for what to do what <laughs> And he's like, I have no idea. <laughs> and then he has no idea too <laughs> because, because we're they're, they're sexless, right? Yes, yeah. they're sexless. Exactly. They're That's like children. The thing. Yes, they are. They are basically they are the way that children use them when they're kids. You know, like the mm. Barbie. Like, right. hey, this is the Barbie taking a shower, and there's no water, and we just throw the food on the plate, and. You know, she floats down to from the top of her house to the car. She's not going to walk through the house. No, of course. The way that she's played with is, you know, she just and then comes out of the house. You know, when you know two people are like arguing, they like bring the dolls together and like. Ah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so that's how like the Kens are with each other, and uh, I really enjoyed the world and seeing all the different uh, iterations of Barbie just interacting. So all of that is great. Love it so much. Yeah. And so then what triggers the second act is Barbie getting through this entire crisis that she's going through. Her feet are touching the ground. She's thinking about death. And <laughs> right. Uh and so she visits Weird Barbie. And this is played by Kate McKinnon. Kate to McKinnon. Perfection. <laughs> perfection. She is it. the Barbie that everybody plays too hard with. And she's you know, perpetually in the splits. Yep. Perpetually in the splits has coloring all over her face. Her hair is cut in terrible ways. And she presents Barbie with the option. Do you want to know the real? There's story? a rift. There's a rift. <laughs> or do you want to go back and not know anything? And obviously Barbie's like the, f- <laughs> the first one. I don't, I don't want to know anything. And she's yeah. like, make the choice again. You got to have to know, you know, <laughs> So this uh, gets Barbie to leave Barbie land, but not without Ken because Ken sneaks in to the car. And so finally she's accepting. Okay, fine. You can come. So they make their way to the real world. And this is where uh, the scene where they're on the beach and she starts feeling the sexualization of her. She starts feeling like this aggressiveness in the Mm -hmm. world. Um and she's realizing that women are not really in charge and not really out there as a, you know, mm-hmm. figure to look up to. And then, of course, Ken is seeing this as like, whoa, there's guys everywhere and they look at me and they respect me and all that. Uh, so my my all this machismo issue, that he's attracted to. Right. He's attracted to it. Trucks. Guys talking in a circle a woman comes and they tell him hold on you know like stuff (laughs) like that um so my my thing about it is i like that part i like the mattel and trying to control barbie 
I like the America Ferrera with the daughter. I, you know, I like these pieces, but I think there's one too many, and I don't know which one it is that's causing it to be a little jumbled for me in that second act. I think for me, it's a little bit of the corporate stuff with Will Ferrell. I agree. I think the Mattel executives are a little bit of a, a blight on the yeah. movie. And I, then I also, this is Greta Gerwig. I have to admit, I don't like Lady Bird. She had a boo. Lady Bird-esque mother and daughter relationship. She did. She did. With America Ferreira and the daughter, which I cannot stand such children. So that was bothering me. And the dress down that the little girl does, the wokeness and her calling Barbie a fascist, like, please, Right. That was the most annoying part of the movie to me. It was. Um, so here was one thing that I was kind of, I don't know, I guess I was get coming up and I wasn't fully understanding. So this is supposed to be the real world. So they know no, that. No, it's, Bar- it's, it's a satire. But it's, it's all satire. Yeah. It's yeah. All, okay. So I just wanted to. Because Mattel, I mean, even sure. Mattel headquarters yeah. and all of that. Yeah, exactly. That's not Mattel at Yeah, I know. It's, it's it is. Not. Not a boardroom in a heart-shaped table full of men in suits or a prison-like labyrinth inside the building housing the ghost of the creator of Barbie. Like, you know, this is all right. fake, right? Yeah. And I guess that's what the hang-up is, is that when she leaves it and she leaves Barbie land and she's on the beach, it seems real. Right. And then she hits Mattel, and it's like right. another it's fantasy like world. another fantasy Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what threw me off a little bit. And okay. also what threw me off and was... And Will Fer- Ferrell, too. Uh, what also threw me off was the daughter when, she, you know, doing the dress down of Barbie. Like, does she know that that's like the real Barbie, you know? Or no. does she think it's no. just some woman who's dressed like Barbie type of yes, thing? Yes, I think she thinks it's some okay. woman who thinks who th- thinks she's Barbie. Got but it. what the movie does understand and what's hidden inside the really big SAT words in the little girl's speech is that the Marvy the the Marvy <laughs> It's a movie about Barbie, so it's a Marvy. Um <laughs> The movie acknowledges that Barbie, the doll, has become a negative influence on body image for many women and children. And it's a measuring stick against which we begrudgingly compare ourselves to. But Mm -hmm. originally, she wasn't this conventional ideal that we consider her. She, Going back to the childhood and how we play with the dolls... Barbie was just us. Like, she was the best of us. Right. She was what we made her. Just like McKinnon's weird Barbie. <laughs> exactly. So that's what I like, the seed of the the idea that they're getting at, which mm-hmm. is, no, no, not everyone is Margot Robbie. <laughs> exactly. That's that's a big one. And I And I it's love... referenced again in America Ferrer's monologue. Yes. I love the moment where... Barbie is crying and she's, you know, <laughs> she's feeling sad and everything, you know, and she says, I feel ugly. Mm-hmm. And then immediately the the narrator <laughs> voice is like, no, Helen Mirren, film- mind you, Helen Mirren. Yes. <laughs> no to the filmmakers. 
Casting Margot Robbie, Robbie probably dilute, dilutes this point a bit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. So because they're trying to make Margot Robbie look bad, please. Yeah. That. Psh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think they came as close as they could in the movie I Tanya. Like that was as oh, close as they could. True. Right. But there's still like glimmers in there. It's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Okay. So that was my hang up on the second act. That's pretty much it. Because what did you think about Barbie sitting on the bus bench next to the elderly woman? Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. I love. WB wanted to cut this. Dumbasses. WB wanted to cut this scene. And Greta was like, no, you can't cut it. Otherwise, I don't know why this I'm even making this. movie. Right. That's the crux of it, because this is Barbie realizing that women can get old Mm -hmm. and there is a world that they live in that mm-hmm. it, it it's finite versus, you know, in Barbie land, it, it just goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And they reference it at the beginning of the movie. Oh, yesterday was the best day ever. And today is and tomorrow will be. And, you know, but there's no change. Everything mm. is the same in Barbie land at the beginning. You right. know, so sure, it's it's utopian, but there's no progress in their development like in no one's development there right they do have this line later in the movie where somebody said i can't remember who says this maybe it might have been the creator ruth but she says you know humans die ruth yeah ruth yeah but ideas ideas live forever that reminds me of another quote of from a different movie is it the Sandlot? Yep. yep. Oh, okay. Cool, cool. <laughs> we were we in the same sync. Thing. <laughs> yeah, what is it? Um, um, uh, heroes. Heroes. Oh, shit. Uh, I, I'll find the quote. Is I'll it Heroes Live Forever, but Legends Never Die? I want to say it's very close to that. It's okay. very close to that. I'll find it, but... So... <laughs> Sorry. It's a yes, tangent. but that is Ruth. And that right. is in the pivotal moment, the big moment that I feel this is like the crux. This is the climax. Well, no, of the that movie. wasn't. Well, I was talking about the. We could talk about Ruth in a second, but like I was referring to this elderly woman sitting next to this youthful Barbie who will live on forever and ever. And it is that line in a nutshell. Gotcha. Right. She's sitting next to someone who has lived a life. And has aged, and she still thinks that she's beautiful. You're so beautiful, Barbie says. She's like, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's it's such a great and it is moment. very meta because she's seeing herself. This is supposed to represent the original Barbie, like the child. Yes. That this doll was created for exactly, not in homage to. Yes. So it's beautiful. I love the moment. Uh, by the way, that quote that I was trying to figure out. It's, <laughs> From the Sandlot? Yes. Remember, kid, there's heroes and there's legends. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Yes. Heroes so get remembered, right. but legends never die. Okay. So yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that was the quote that kind of came to mind with it. So, um, all right. So, yes. Barbie goes it. back. 
Ken brought the patriarchy, oh but it's a watered down version of the patriarchy. Horses. So many horses. <laughs> horses are everywhere. Because <laughs> he the... thinks they're the ones that were in charge, but then he has this unreal fascination with horses. So that's what he comes back with. The Kens have brainwashed all the Barbies to easily. To be subservient. To be subservient. <laughs> they don't recognize the the awards and acclaim that they had earned prior to the patriarchy coming to town. Yep. He renamed his house to the Mojo Doza, Dojo Casa House. Yep, Mojo Dojo Casa House. <laughs> <laughs> and unsurprisingly in the real world, the Mojo Dojo Casa House was selling out. Yeah. I mean, it's very like of course this would happen. Of course. Oh my god. <laughs> What did you think of this version of the patriarchy and how the Barbies handled it? Uh, of this version of the patriarchy? Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the patriarchy is very... The way it's portrayed in the movie is very on-the-nose, like, men, gym, working out, trucks, all that stuff, right? It's very... Superficial. Superficial. And doesn't really have the teeth no. of the real patriarchy. No, it doesn't. No, Which because... to me was nice because Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach and all the other creators and producers really could have created an ugly yeah, patriarchal Barbie land. They really could have. They It, it could have gotten to the point because there was a, there was a reference in that in that moment where um ken is talking with that guy and the guy is like oh we can't do that anymore it's like oh i thought guys were in charge it's like we still are but you know we just hide it better now mm -hmm. you know i thought that that would play something a little bit bigger um mm. uh, just because like there would be more of a sinister nature behind it mm -hmm. you know uh but because ken is ken he's just seeing all of the outside he's just seeing the facade of like oh this looks right. so cool let's right. bring it back to barbie land you know yeah he's seeing it like that um and that's a simple-minded way of viewing it which is again very smart because mm -hmm. it, she could have really alienated any male audience quickly by bringing the real patriarchy to barbie land. oh yeah for sure. She probably could have. But, I mean, she was already it was silly. people. Stupid people. Ken, uh, all Kens are himbos. And <laughs> they're not that antagonistic. They're just stupid, silly, misguided. But they're not real villains. Yeah. They're not. They are. So, I don't. I, there, I think there was a discourse on the socials that this movie is all about man hating. I'm not sure where they're getting that at all. <laughs> because I am sure that there was a version floating around. Oh, for sure. Where there was a lot more man hating, if you can even call it that. Right. Believe me, that it could have been Believe me. crazier. Mm -hmm. Crazier. Yeah. And the climax Ken, Barbie's comforting Ken and saying you can be your own person. Right. 
What kind of olive branch is this? This is the Barbie movie. Ken has a full arc. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it, it's I love it. And it is he even generous. Gets a song. It's generous. I think. Yes, it is. And then he gets his own song. To, oh, two songs. He gets two. That's right. That's right. One's the cover, and then the "I'm Just Ken" song. I'm Just Ken, and I'm Just Ken really speaks to like what his superficial desires are. Mm-hmm. Of what he wants, he just wants Barbie, and he just wants to be <laughs> attention. But you know, it's Barbie who has to talk to him and let, make him realize you're more than that. You aren't just Beach. Mm-hmm. You aren't just Barbie's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not my. You boyfriend. can rise above what you were created for. Exactly. Your archetype. Exactly. Exactly. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay. Uh, so we're starting to run a little long here, but what I okay, want to talk about though. is the let's third talk about act. the ending. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the pivotal moment where Ruth shows up to Barbie land and Ruth is the creator of Barbie. Mm-hmm. And so then Barbie joins her in this kind of uh, limbo type of, you know, world. It's the King's Cross sequence from Harry Potter. Yeah, pretty know. much. <laughs> and... This is where they are having a conversation of what does Barbie want? Because Barbie doesn't feel like she has anything to do or what is she made for? Ha. Did you feel like this was a religious allegory? Ooh. In what way? I want to hear this. Because Barbie is the creation. Right? Humans. Yes. Oh, and then Ruth is representing God. I got something here. Okay. So apparently Greta Gerwig, she talked about the different things that they snuck in to the movie. You know, obviously there's a huge Kubrick reference at the beginning of the movie, 2001 obviously. Space Odyssey. Yeah. She said that the boardroom was inspired by Dr. Strangelove. Right. <laughs> so, but then Margot Robbie mentioned that one subtle detail that Greta did for the first time that Ruth and Barbie meet is when they when their hands go to touch when she's passing the tea it is like uh the Sistine Chapel God and Adam God and Adam the Michelangelo the Michelangelo so yeah so so I'm pretty sure you're spot on with this we're on this yeah Yeah. so so back to back to that moment where she is She's sad because she doesn't know what she's made for. Because every mm-hmm. other Barbie has like she was stereotypical to do. Barbie, right? And she didn't have a vocation. She didn't have a passion. She was just living day to day. And what America Ferrera was pitching was an ordinary Barbie. Yes, an ordinary Barbie. One that had insecurities, and one that was dealing with cellulite, and one that was thinking extensively about death (laughs) and uh, as much as the connection between her and America Ferrera is sort of downplayed by the end of the movie I do feel like fundamentally who who was connected with her and playing with her in the real world did influence Barbie to obviously have this existential crisis and think I want to be real right yes I want to be real. And and Ruth warns her. It's like, 
you're going to grow old. Humans die. You know, there's, it's not something forever. And Barbie at that moment has to make a choice. And she makes the choice. The Very montage easy. of the home videos of the cast and crew shook me to my core with the Billie Eilish song playing over top of it. I thought that when Ruth said, I can only let you know like what you're getting into. She said something to that effect before holding Barbie's hand and showing her this grand vision, which reminded me of The Giver. I don't know if you've read that book or seen that movie. The Giver. The Giver. The Giver imparts these like powerful memories, the history of the... Gotcha. Anyway, so I was thinking this is going to be a negative thing, that she was going to show her all the bad parts of life that would hinder her from making this big decision to exit Barbie land and become a real woman. That was not the approach that Greta Gerwig took. She took the more positive approach that life is worth living. Yes. And you should be proud to be a woman. Amen. And again, I'm going to try not to cry, but it was very emotional and it really didn't hit me how much it spoke to me until way later. Like we're talking about this, almost a week later and today is when i've kind of been like really in my feels about it yeah because once the hee hee ha ha wears off this is what i'm struck with yeah it's that man that that is such a powerful moment the lyrics of the song what was i made for oh my god such a finding purpose and such a well done deviating from your original blueprint so to speak and the creator saying it's okay come on (laughs) fantastic come on it was beautiful it was well done barbie chooses to be real she didn't need permission from ruth the creator to do it it was all inside of her all along and the final sequence was a nice hee-hee-ha-ha moment where you think that maybe she's going in for a job interview or something. Right. <laughs> she ends up going in. She sees reception. And she says, I'm here to see my gynecologist. <laughs> because now, obviously, she's real. She has genitals. Oh, my god. Which goodness. was a previous call. It's a callback to the previous joke. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That was such a well-timed joke for the end of the movie. Right. It really was. Um, Overall, I think that this movie is, yes, like you said, there's a lot of funny moments and you have the music and all the facade. Mm -hmm. But that core of like what the movie's about and how it speaks to the struggles of being a woman uh, of being a woman but at the same time being proud and living mm-hmm. you know as a woman in womanhood um i think that that's going to resonate that's going to resonate for people um obviously for women and for men who understand mm-hmm. that's what the movie's trying to say and uh, i'm i was so excited before the movie and i got more than i wanted like mm. i got even more than i wanted like uh, in in a positive way and i can't wait to see it again same I will, I will definitely see it again 
and I will recommend it to to a lot of people. Obviously, there are certain people where I know it's going to go right over their heads. It's going to go right over their heads, and that's fine. And, you know, sometimes you, you just can't help people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in this case, though, I know who to recommend it to, and and I'm I'm so glad that this movie did so well. Because what I hope it does is that it opens the door yeah. for more chances and risks, especially behind women mm-hmm. directing, mm-hmm. writing. And original stories. And original stories. And sure, it's an IP, but we had never seen a Barbie movie We'd like never this. seen a Barbie movie live action like this before. No, this is a first time. And yeah. uh, I hope that audiences can get behind this as well um you know be able to see original movies and be like you know what let's go see that movie let's go see it in theaters support it so that way these studios know hey we got something here with with what they're doing let's Mm -hmm. let's support them let's find talent like this uh that's my only hope is that that happens Coming mm, out that the this. message is clear. Yeah, that the message is clear. But of course, they're you know they're not going to. They're going to be like, well, Barbie was popular. What else from Mattel can we do? Barbie two, Barbie three, Barbie four, yeah, other Mattel then, products. Yeah, and then cross. You know, it'll be a Mattel universe. Whatever. Right. I hope they get the right message out of. We can only hope. We can only. I hope. We can only hope. So, uh, and that's not the only original type of movie no. that we got this weekend. Big so, weekend. Be, big weekend indeed. So uh, that is our discussion on Barbie. Thank you for checking that out. And right now, we're going to jump into Oppenheimer right after this. Now we are going to talk about Oppenheimer. So this is the second movie <laughs> Sorry, of the weekend. I didn't mean wow. To laugh. wow, okay. <laughs> uh, that's the second movie of the Barbenheimer experience. Yep. yep. And uh, so let's go ahead and let's talk about it. So first off, uh, Jessica, what is Oppenheimer about? I got you. IMDb synopsis reads, The story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. Very straightforward. Yeah. Uh, it is based on the book American Prometheus, mm-hmm. um, a biography about Oppenheimer. Uh, the movie is directed by Christopher Nolan, also written by Christopher Nolan, alongside Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. The movie stars, again, a crazy cast. <laughs> this cast is uh, whack. Okay. Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Alden Ehrenreich, Jason Clark. Tony Gildwin, uh, yeah, Goldwyn, sorry. Uh, Scott Grimes, Macon Blair, James Darcy, Kenneth Branagh, and that's only half of the cast because then you get into a slew of people. Cha- uh, Josh Peck, uh, <laughs> Casey Affleck, Florence Pugh, um, Benny Safdie, yeah. um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gary Oldman. Gary like, Oldman, that's right. It's Rami Malek. Yeah. Which, by the way, I don't know if you saw this in the credits, but Rami Malek got a with Rami Malek, 
and Kenneth oh, Branagh really? at the end. Kenneth <gasps> Branagh. I was just like, how did <laughs> Rami Malek get the with Rami Malek? He must have really good negotiators. He must have really good negotiators. Like that Oscar is doing him so many favors. It is. My goodness. Okay. He's very good. But anyway, okay, we'll talk about it. So how did this movie do at the box office? It made a modest $80.5 million domestic <laughs> since opening, <laughs> which is huge, and $174.1 million worldwide for a drama biopic from an auteur director. Rated R. Rated R. It's three hours, three hours long. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is a huge opening for him. Uh, the movie was well received by people. 94% from critics, 94% from audiences. And the critics' consensus reads, Oppenheimer marks another engrossing achievement from Christopher Nolan that benefits from Murphy's tour de force performance and stunning visuals. So, with all that said... Why don't you start? Okay, I will start. So, <laughs> uh, my thoughts on Oppenheimer. Okay, so... Oppenheimer, uh, coming out of the gate, it is a very good movie. Very good. I think that the performances are incredible. Killian Murphy, uh, I believe, will get an Oscar <laughs> nomination for, for I this. think so, too. Um, I think that everybody in this movie brings their A game when it comes to acting. So there's there's no one who you feel like, ah, this was a bad performance or anything like that. Uh, visually, just amazing work with what they're doing on the screen um i love the sound of the movie like, really it is it is over the top but at the same time it's <laughs> it's chilling and then you throw in ludwig Göransson's score in there as well oh yes yes and i thought it was giving hans zimmer a run for his money yeah like he he's almost <laughs> like a you know a protege almost it yeah. feels like with his sound and overall, I won't say it's one of Nolan's best because there's a few, there's a couple of them that I, I definitely put ahead of it for sure. Mm. Um, and now when it comes to this year with the movies, I think it's it's up there right now. I don't know if it'll stay up there as the year goes because this does feel like one of those movies like, wow, that was amazing to watch. And I don't know. If I'll watch it again. Now, I think I will because I'm I'm just that type of person. You're a Nolan bro. Yes. Yes. That has a negative connotation nowadays. But yes, I do enjoy Nolan films. I have been a fan for a long time of his. And I think that the way the movie is structured, it clearly has three ways or three different points. And each hour kind of feels like its own thing that it's doing mm. and it feels different in each hour um and overall i think this is a great movie a wonderful biopic or you know a fictional you know slight fictional telling of it and i really enjoyed myself i i felt engrossed in it um i was really on the edge of my seat you know during the trinity se sequence you know and yeah, I, I really got as much as I thought I would get out of it from a Nolan movie. Uh, it actually doesn't even – it's a typical, very conventional uh, Nolan movie if you think about it. Like if you look at the way he structured this movie versus 
something like Tenet or even Interstellar, uh, the way or even Dunkirk, the way he just messes with time in those mm-hmm. movies. And so he's kind of, you know, constantly cutting from the past and then forward and this and that in most of his movies. This one kind of feels a little more conventional. This one mm-hmm. feels yeah. almost restrained. <laughs> For the most part, it's well, it's not that chronological. No, but like it still feels pretty coherent versus something like Tenet. Like you can. You're telling me. Clearly make sense of it. Here I had a full movie. on conniption during know, the Tenet, <laughs> the tenet review. <laughs> I know. Uh, but overall, a very enjoyable movie. I really enjoyed it. Jessica, what do you think of it? I came in with really high expectations because I I think I was just sold on the hype of mm. Oppenheimer, of Nolan, of the cast and everything. I was not thrilled with a three hour time for the movie. The runtime was really annoying to me. But I sat there. I was engaged. I was willing to. I came at it with a really open mind. I think the first bit of the movie, maybe the first hour, felt really disjointed to me. Mm-hmm. It felt like it was moving in very different directions and telling really different stories, right? One is the chronological, one's about the Manhattan Project, it's about the setting up who this character is, the Oppenheimer dude, what's his deal, how did he grow, how did he learn, all of his backstory. And then it seems like there's something happening with the RDJ story that I'm like, I don't get what the relevance is. Mm. So I was grasping a little bit at why he was telling what felt like two or three different stories at the same time. As the movie progressed, the stories got a little tighter. The braid was, you know, starting to take shape. And by the end, it was a lot about, obviously, the giant moral ethical quandary of building bomb and unleashing the bomb. Mm -hmm. The personal plight and ramifications and the consequences on Oppenheimer's psyche of doing such a thing and the responsibility that comes with it. And then there was a lot of personal stuff that we can talk about with respect to the lady characters. It was a little bit undersold. That is underwhelming. Unfortunately, one of Nolan's blind spots. And then I thought the best part of the movie was just the juicy bit with RDJ and his character and how ego and jealousy and inferiority complex played such a huge role in diminishing Oppenheimer's influence and power in government. So I thought Matt Damon was going to be bigger. He wasn't. (laughs) I thought... Uh, Emily Blunt was going to be bigger. She wasn't. I I thought Florence was going to be bigger. It was weird. And then RDJ, who was really undersold in a lot of the promo, ended up being really important to the story. Yeah, he was very important. Jason Clark, fuck that guy. I never like him in anything that he's been in. Oh, my God. He's always the worst, grimy, sweaty villain. He's a good villain. He is awful. He's really good. I hope that that man is awful. A treasure in real life because I don't know how he sleeps at night with what his characters have done. This is not the first time that we've seen Jason. No, Clark. it's not. Well, <laughs> he was the good guy in Dawn of the Planet. No, wait. Uh, 
Rise of the Planet of the Apes? I'm forgetting the title, the second I one. I do not know how you remember all those titles. It's the second one. Dawn. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Because I remember, because Rise, for some reason, comes ahead of it. Serenity? Yes, Serenity. I was about to say it. <laughs> Jason Clark. He is something else. Wow. Um. So, yeah. So, I think that, again, the... The performances are good. Yes, you are right that, again, the female parts are underwritten. That is a problem in no in a couple of pla- In a couple of places, I'm like, wow. But otherwise, really unremarkable. Obviously, coming off Barbie, this Oppenheimer movie does not pass the Bechdel test on no, a baseline of level. Of And it's interesting. Obviously, he places a lot of the movie in black and white and then the other half in color. The consensus, I think, from people or the analysis that's going around is that whatever's in black and white is objective, taken as fact, maybe has sources or material that Mm -hmm. speaks to its factual, its being factual. And then everything that's in color is subjective. Everything that's in first person from Oppenheimer's perspective what do you what do you think? Something that I saw is that apparently Nolan, when he was writing the stuff for Killian Murphy to play Oppenheimer, he wrote the script in first person for mm-hmm. him, which is rare that you don't you don't really see a script. You don't have scripts like that. And so apparently those are what's tied to the sequences in color uh, stuff that dealing with Oppenheimer. And then. There was parts right. of the script that are written in the third person where they are referring to Oppenheimer in the third person, uh-huh. and those are in black and white. Killian Murphy is such a pleasant person, really chill and humble in so many interviews, and I wish that he was in more stuff and mm. that he got more varied scripts. I think someone <laughs> asked him if he wanted to be in Barbie too, like a potential sequel, and he said, yeah, like send me the script. Yeah, I would like to see he him have fun. There was someone that said, like, why don't you do a rom-com? Like, someone asked him in an interview, why don't you do a rom-com? And he's like, I just don't get those scripts, <laughs> unfortunately. And I was like, poor man, because I'm sure that he'd be open to doing different things. We were this close, <laughs> this close to him being Batman. Yes, he tested, no? He tested, Nolan yeah. wanted him. And the studio was like, Nah, we're good. Yeah, you're not. He wasn't the Nolan that he is now. Like he probably could have right. pushed it if it was now, but at that time he was like, yeah, he was just coming off of Insomnia, you know, Memento. So he didn't have power. So he was hoping. Yeah, he didn't have. He didn't throw his weight. But he wanted Cillian back then, Mur- like he does. He now. wanted Killian Murphy as as Batman. But uh, that to say, I think that visually this movie. Again, I really enjoy, obviously, the Trinity uh, sequence. Very Which is all se- shot practically. Those are real. Those are real bombs. Bombs. Not A-bombs. Not okay, A-bombs. that's illegal. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah <let's laughs> and uh, wrong. There was, a lot of, there was a lot of joking of like Warner Brothers when he said that there was no CGI in this movie. How were the bombs <laughs> made, Christopher? How were the bombs made? So. Uh, yeah. There was a lot. He likes to do practical effects. He is not a huge fan of CGI, which is all fine and good. I respect that. Going back to Killian, um, 
I think this is the first time that I heard that he's method. Uh, yeah, me too. I, I didn't know it. That he had people... He made people call him Oppenheimer on on set when the cameras were not rolling. Oh, God. To just refer to him as Oppenheimer, he lost a bunch of weight to appear as frail and thin as Oppenheimer does in the desert when he lived out there and was working on the project. Uh, that's... I think the Oppenheimer call, calling him Oppenheimer outside. Yeah, yeah. The act, it, it's, like it's the Daniel Day Lewis Lincoln oh. thing. Wanting to be called Lincoln or Mr. President, like it's frightening. It's, it's too much. It's frightening. Uh, okay, before we get into spoilers, so we can like dive deeper into some of the bigger stuff. Um, well, first off, what you give this grade as a movie? I was going to give it an A minus and then I thought B plus. I settled with an A minus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're right around. Yeah. We're very close. We're very close. Um, Anything else that you wanted to mention before we get into spoilers though? No, no. Spoilers. I was going to say something and then I was like, no, no, no. That's really spoilery. That's a real spoiler. (laughs) Okay. So let's go ahead and let's talk spoilers for Oppenheimer right after this. The greatest trick. Houston, we have a problem. I the father. I see dead people. The devil ever pulled. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Was convincing the world. You can't handle the truth. He didn't exist. Oh, what's in the box? Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh and her titties in this movie. Stupid. That was gratuitous. Yes, I was going to say the same thing. Totally this, unnecessary. Um, I... And so this took me by surprise in a Nolan yeah. movie because usually the he usually are, doesn't he doesn't he doesn't do this yeah it's not really his thing so you know I thought maybe they would insinuate it instead but no mm-hmm. like they went full out like twice 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 like the first time okay they're in a bedroom and like you know they're they're doing it whatever but then the second time is so jarring and so uncomfortable. Because it's in the middle of his deposition. Right. Where, like, the camera's kind of panning over. And from I get right the. Right. I get it, right? I get That's what it what is. The wife, Kitty, <sighs> is thinking. But it's, it's how she feels. She's yes. disgusted. She's envisioning them together. Fine, fine, fine. But I still argue that it was unnecessary. I think so, too. I agree. You and I are All times. In, in lockstep right here. Okay. And if you've listened to us, you know we're not prudes here, okay? Right. But this... Come on. Like, I think... Look, In I'm a not movie saying, about the father of the atomic bomb, right, you're telling me you ex- needed a sex scene? Right. So, like, for example, I know that... I, I don't know if saying excited is the word that we were trying to use, but the movie with Ben Affleck and Anna, Anna the Armas... Uh, deep water deep water deep water like you know was being hyped up as like the return of the erotic thriller you know like (laughs) and you know we were like okay let's let's watch it you know (laughs) not that we were like yeah let's do it but yeah um but again we don't really look at it as like yeah that really contributed to the movie you know right especially like in this in this it didn't contribute like it was just shock for the sake of shock you know uh, so, we got that out of the way. Again, Sorry. Had uh, to Florence come in hot Pugh's with that one. character just 
underwritten, not really much there. Very besides. flawed. Yeah. Very flawed character. In real life, you get so much more context that she was struggling with, uh, that she was she was gay and that she basically hated herself and she was struggling with clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And there was, I think the movie did a better job of showcasing the mystery and conspiracy around her death. Yes. Because when she was when she died and committed suicide, there was that hand, gloved hand that was like holding yes. her head underwater. Yeah. I saw that and I was like, oh. It's been suggested that she was killed because there were other people that were killed around this time that it's confirmed that they were, the FBI were keeping tabs on all of these people and then offing people when they needed to. Mm-hmm. So it could, it's well within the realm of reason. Especially because the suicide note was unsigned and whatever else. So, but largely this is her death and her suicide is exactly, you know, she was found with all of these cushions and stuff and she drowned herself in the bathtub. Right. After taking some pills and stuff, which she had access to as a psychiatrist. The Emily Blunt character, Kitty Oppenheimer interesting very flawed person as well yes i don't know if i've seen such an odd off kilter like female character in a while yeah yeah because she obviously didn't fit any like set boxes or anything which i liked but there was something really off-putting about her there was they had obviously such a huge bond in real life and they certainly cared for each other. They stayed married. This was her fourth husband. Fourth. Fourth husband. And the movie, I don't know what they were trying to say here, but like when she gets pregnant and she's taking care of the newborn, he comes home late after working and she's sitting in a dark room with a bottle of alcohol. It's like red flag, right? Like right, exactly. The baby's been crying and he says, why don't you go to him? And she <laughs> and says, response. I've gone to him all day. Yeah. Oof. And like walks off. And I don't know why the movie I, I really... Some of these decisions, I don't know what they're trying to say about the way that Oppenheimer's, the Oppenheimer's parented. <laughs> because it uh, never comes full circle. No, it doesn't. It's not quite relevant in the grand scheme of things either with all of the competing themes and grander observations about the project and the society and everything, right? Like these scenes are really weird to me. Uh, I think it's just more just kind of giving you glimpses of Oppenheimer's life. Just small glimpses because you don't have enough time. And in a three-hour movie, to say you don't have enough time to get the pieces of his like day-to-day life is tough to say. And I see you. (laughs) It's just that I think... Oppenheimer, again, really questionable, slippery character who throughout the movie doesn't seem to have clear stances on a lot of things. He's very fluid. Yes, he is. In his beliefs. 
And despite that, he's really resolute in furthering science and researching and full steam ahead on creating the bomb. Yeah. He's a hell of a project manager. He really is. He really is. Despite all that, you're telling me this man being so busy creating the A-bomb could cheat on his wife. Have found the time, the time to cheat on his wife. Had the time to cheat on his wife. Men will stop at nothing. Bro. They'll stop at nothing. Bro. He's in the middle of New Mexico. <laughs> the desert. by train to Chicago. <laughs> and he still does it. He still does and it. And he gets flowers. It's not like, oh, I came straight from the train no, station. No, he like, he had to by. stop, get flowers for Florence Pugh, who throws them out. Yeah, because she doesn't want them. Because she doesn't want the flower <sighs> again. So let's. Anyway. Let's go. Let's kind of talk about, first off, uh, the Strauss character by Robert Downey Jr. Uh, this character kind of has, it basically has his own arc in the movie. Uh, and it kind of plays a large part because this is a, a man who is trying to get a well cabinet seat right. in the administration of the president. And so his stuff, he is currently going through Senate confirmation, mm-hmm. uh, but it all comes at the cost of him basically bad-mouthing and exiling Oppenheimer um, through different tactics that he's used. And what really struck me was... Uh, when you find out that he's been pulling strings in the background. This was very, I don't know if it was just not done well or if it was done so slowly throughout the three hours that you were kind of like, oh, he's a puppet master. Right. A little too late in the movie. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Um. But nonetheless, I still like when they show the Time magazine cover of him and then he reads the quote and is like, we were just talking about that a few days ago. That's an excellent scene. Fantastic. That's in the last hour of the movie. Yeah, it is. Maybe at last 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah, it's wonderful. And he's like, and with Alden having like a fall from (laughs) because he was so earnest in trying to help Strauss win the Senate, uh, sorry, the cabinet seat and ch- telling him all the rules and, oh, this is just a game we got to play and it should be fine and coaching him when, <laughs> I mean, Alden thought they were playing checkers and Strauss was over here playing chess. Exactly. And he had it all under control. He knew the rules and he was manipulating things behind the scenes. And I so- think you're you're blindsided, though. Largely, especially because I don't know the history. No, I only I after I got out of the theater that I was like rating every like page that was talking about this. And he says there because, you know, you th- oh, Aaron Reich's character, like yeah. you said, he was naive. And that's when Louis Strauss tells him amateurs chase the sun and get burned. Power stays in the shadows. That is Excellent line. Excellent line. Excellent and line. So well delivered by Robert Downey Jr. Um, so a great back and forth there. I really enjoy. Um, before we uh, let's jump back. So okay, let's talk about the middle of the movie. This is, I think, the the 
the biggest piece of the movie, and it's the Trinity Project or the Manhattan Project with the Trinity Test. Yes. Uh, so everything is gearing towards it. We have uh, Matt Damon, who's recruited Oppenheimer to lead the project in Los Alamos, mm-hmm. and uh, everything is geared to okay, we're going to make this bomb. And what's what the huge, you know, fight here, and it's it's the question is. If we build this bomb, are we actually going to use it? And the scientists are having this conversation, but the government's already made that decision. We're going to drop this thing. Yes. And, you know, there's this struggle morally within the scientific community of like, if we build this, you know, it's on us that we build such a power. The blood is on our hands. Yeah, the blood is on our hands. And they are thinking maybe we can convince them, hey... You know, let them know that we have something that could be devastating and maybe that'll get them to back off. Maybe that'll get them to, you know, retreat and to, you know, resign in the war. And but the government's like already headstrong of like, we need to pick out a city we're going to destroy. Right. And the intention of the bomb originally was to bomb Germany, bomb Nazi Germany. Exactly. Not japan not japan but after uh hitler is well killed was killed suicide whatever it was suicide yeah suicide i think Uh, the story is suicide the story is suicide uh germany gives up and Mm -hmm. but then japan is still out there right they're they're not giving up Mm -hmm. so now the u.s government has turned their eyes to stopping japan and the scientists are like, this is not what we're, what we were going to do. We were, we were, all the intention was to stop Germany. Right. And that's the whole topic of the movie, right? Is the best of intentions can be used for the most, utmost evil. Exactly. <laughs> or destruction. Yeah. Uh, because I guess evil is in the eye of the beholder. Um it's very powerful. It plays out extremely slowly. And I think that there's some elements of the movie that worked extremely well. And to me, one of those things was the auditory cue of the stomping. Yes. The rhythmic stomping, which you finally see that scene in the rhythmic stomping is from this wooden auditorium where every member of the Manhattan Project is there and celebrating the success of the bomb actually detonating and being used and, you know, this whole thing coming to fruition and celebrating Oppenheimer. And the moment is eerie and it's very, what's the word? Not bittersweet, because I don't think bittersweet is the right word. I think it's haunting. Yes, it is. Because the visual that they give... Um, so there was something that I've noticed is when he gets behind the podium and tries to start speaking behind him is shaking. Oh, yeah. They start. What's that called? Yeah. Like the focus behind him, like like his entire yes. background starts to kind of shake uh-huh. and jitter and um, everything's becoming very loud for him. And he's having these visuals of people's faces you know being burned off and 
he has another visual like he steps into a spot and it's an entire burned body Mm -hmm. you know uh at one moment he sees a woman laughing and then he turns the corner and looks at her again and she's like full-on sobbing Mm -hmm. you know like he is struggling with what has just happened the moment is complex it is because for Oppenheimer, people are viewing him as a conquering hero for mm-hmm. what he's done, but he has realized what he has unleashed on the world. Right. And that is the conflicting part to him. Um, uh-huh. Obviously, I think leading up to it, leading up to this point, Oppenheimer yeah. is viewed or the way he is portrayed in the movie as this cocksure, like hmm. totally you know, I know what I'm doing. You don't have to tell me what to do. I can do just about anything type. That There's mentality. an arrogance to him. Yes. And he has all the confidence in the world before this thing sort of gets out of hand and he cannot take back the bomb. <laughs> Can't right? take it back. And obviously this moment is foreshadowed early on when they have that moment. He's studying in Germany, I think. And he poisons the apple. And he leaves the apple there. He goes and like sleeps it off. And then he wakes up in a sweat. Oh, crap. And realizes I'm about to murder my, what was it? A professor or a TA or something. And he instantly goes back to try and take it back. He does end up successfully getting the apple and nobody dies. But you can see that the similar thing happens with the bomb that he goes apeshit trying to create this bomb and assemble the best of the best and people from all over the world and segment everybody and just be the best project manager ever. He's a theorist. He's not actually good in the lab or at doing things hands-on. He didn't assemble the bomb himself, you know, but it's out of his hand. Like, you know, he leaves the room essentially just like when he was a student. Yeah. And it's only later that he's like, oh shit, I just murdered all these people. Yeah. Yeah. I just, created devastation yeah it's the literal same thing as the green apple yeah it is it is that is a small representation of what will become of his life and i think the movie shows that he sort of regretted the movie my interpretation was that he regretted yes i think in real life he less so regretted per the documentation i don't think he regretted the bomb i think what he was cautious was he was really stirred about the escalation exactly after the fact right that That this is now a slippery slope because then everybody would be in a race to make theirs bigger make theirs bigger make more so on and so forth exactly um so so that is the big you know challenge for this character in the movie Uh uh-huh and i think the way they they showcase it where the first half up until the Trinity test is this cocky character. And then I think after, he's greedy. Oh yeah. For I sure. think there's greed of man and then also greed of innovation. Yeah. 
and science. The father of the A-bomb. Gathering of minds is really enticing when it's, you know, everyone's being paid pretty well. Everyone's being obviously sequestered, for lack of a better word. But it's years and years of this tight-knit partnership. And that's really enticing, I think. Once they're there, you know, they can't leave. This is a community, a thriving, (laughs) you know, think tank. And once that is done, like once the Trinity test happens, I think where it's a whole different ballgame, even in the context of the movie. Yes. Yes. I think a lot of people were complaining, oh, it's we don't get all of this context. We don't get the the fact that he killed all of these people in Japan, all of the nuclear fallout, what happened with after the Trinity test, what happened with the Native Americans, what happened with the people that lived within a 125-mile radius of the blast and how that affected the... It was like a humanitarian crisis that they just unleashed, not only with the Trinity test, but with the actual bombings. And everyone's like, they just glossed over it. They didn't really expound upon this. They did not. But And... I don't think I mind so much. It's Oppenheimer. It's Oppenheimer's story. It's not. Yeah. It's not the story of the Manhattan Project. Right. It is the story of the man behind it. So. Right. If they don't touch on it, it, it that's going to happen because, again, we're that would be just changing directions of the movie, of the story completely mm-hmm. to something different. And if you wanted to make a movie that was about the Manhattan Project, then I understand that that's part of it and that's a huge part and this isn't a documentary no it's not it is this a, is very clearly drawing from fiction with the, everything in color right being because we have no idea book. if this happened yeah. right it's based on a book american prometheus and so yeah so there are things in there that obviously we don't know the full context behind them but mm-hmm. we are making assumptions and Nolan is writing a fictional story of the things that had happened. So what are the details around that? You know? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't see too much of a problem with that, of the things that they left out, because again, you're seeing it through a singular view of one person who it's his eyes. So what is he seeing? What is he <laughs> engaging with? You know? Yes. Um, those eyes half of this of movie is talking about eyes half yeah. of this movie is killian murphy just <laughs> just staring yes it was <laughs> I don't, do you like that um i love that tiktok audio that's like what do you want from me ah, what do you want <laughs> do you remember you never heard that no I <gasps> you've heard never that. no that i haven't heard so that good. i haven't <laughs> um oh another moment that struck me was when he uh when oppenheimer goes to meet president truman played by Gary Oldman. Oh my gosh. And, you know, Truman is, you know, like, you know, congratulations on this. And Oppenheimer is sharing his views of like, I think we should not be doing anything further. We should be trying to dissuade everyone from, you know, that creating an H bomb. Exactly. The hydrogen bomb and God knows what else. And when he mentions, I feel like I have blood on my hands. And Truman takes out the handkerchief and gives it to him. <laughs> He's like, those people in Nagasaki 
and Hiroshima don't care that you created it. They care that I dropped it. Right. They care who dropped it. They care who dropped it. And I was the one. And so then uh, <laughs> basically the other guy that was in the room with him gets up kind of as indicating, okay, it's time for you to go. And as he's walking out, Truman just says, don't bring that. Don't Cry baby back in here. Yeah. I was like, damn, bro. Oh, man. Shock. Shock. The shock that's on my face. It was incredible. I think the movie sort of hit its stride when you realize that Robert Downey Jr.'s character Strauss had the vendetta against Oppenheimer because he felt humiliated by Oppenheimer mm-hmm. when he was trying to introduce policy on the isotopes and Oppenheimer was like, "What's the, there's no impetus, there's no reason to control isotopes. So it was very easy to understand when it hit that bit and when they were doing the interrogations in the chamber and when they were interrogating when Jason Clark was doing anything basically right. that was really frustrating and really riveting it was it was the scene that i think emily blunt could get nominated for is one of those scenes where they finally question her as part of the investigation into oppenheimer and they start asking her questions about her communist past and everything and she Starts talking Jason Clark into a corner. Yes. It's fantastic. That scene is the one they'll play. When she gets nominated for Best When she gets actor. nominated. I think, who, who are the nominees here? So Killian for Best yes. Actor. Killian for Best. Robert Downey for Supporting. Yep. Uh, Emily Blunt for, for Supporting. supporting. And Do you think Matt Damon will also get nommed? That's the one that I was thinking about is maybe he Two gets Two from the same movie? Because... Um, I don't see anybody else like their their part wasn't big enough uh, to to you know stand out mm-hmm. over those two. Downey mm-hmm. feels like almost a lock for supporting. True, but it's Matt Damon's the question. He would be the only other one that I can think of. Like he gets a nomination as well. But yeah, I, and then his scene would be the one where it's from the trailer. Where it's like why? Because this is the single most important thing that's ever happened. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they always have thing. to play the over-the-top one. There's he has always, a hissy fit. That's, yeah. that's like, um, uh, what's his name? Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight. They knew, and they let <laughs> they it happen. They let it happen. <laughs> it's that moment. It's it's the big one. The, <laughs> the over-acting. Um, so I wanted to talk about another scene uh, before we're done. So it's Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, is worried about who the witness is going to be coming in to talk yes they say it's a scientist and they don't know which scientist it is and so then we finally learn that it's hill played by rami malik's character yes. who we saw you know briefly here and there in different moments yeah. of the movie. it was relegated to almost like a cameo right for this scene in in the in the chamber and what a scene what a scene because they all are coming to think that he is going to give a positive reinforcement to why Strauss should be a cabinet member. And all of the interactions that Hill has had with Oppenheimer seem a little on the negative side. They seem like he's not really giving him the time, Hill the time of day. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and so you feel like he, Hill is going to benefit Strauss. Right. Hill will benefit Strauss because Strauss has been coordinating with Dane DeHaan's character, oh. David Dalsmachian's character, to find any bit of his file, mm-hmm. his secret FBI file, where yeah. they can make him look bad. Then they do this entire mock, um, you know, it's not even a court because it's all behind no. closed doors. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, they are threatening to not give Oppenheimer his security clearance for uh-huh. renewal. Yeah. But they're making him look bad with all of his past dealings with the Communist Party, with um, the way he handled the project. and the It's w- not a trial, so it's not fair. It's not a trial, so it's not fair. Exactly. And and you see it clearly when the uh, when the prosecutor or, you know, the offensive side I has loved his all lawyer. the details. Macon Blair. Yes. Plays his lawyer Garrison. It's like, can I have copies of the paperwork? And Disclosure. It's like, it's classified. And it's like, yeah. Can't even, you know, they, it's so unfair what they're doing here mm-hmm. towards the character. So David Hill comes on and he Bro. just shreds everything up. And so here's, tell me if this is a reach. Tell me if this is a reach. Oh, Lord. What are you about so to say? So the book or the movie is based on the book American Prometheus. Do you know the story of Prometheus? Vaguely. So just this is the nuts and bolts. Nuts and bolts. Uh, Prometheus is known for he was an Olympian god. He stole fire from the gods. Yes. And gave it to humanity to form technology, you know, civilization. Zeus was so mad by this that he punished Prometheus. That Prometheus would be outcast. Mm -hmm. He would be set out until the help of Heracles who came in and saved Prometheus from the other gods. It might be a little bit of a reach that you could put like these different characters into those roles. I don't think that's a reach. You don't think so? Okay. So I just wanted to, you know, kind of extend that. So So you're saying hell is Heracles and RDJ is the god Zeus. Zeus. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay. In this scenario. Mm-hmm. Where it does take one person to come up to to stand up for Oppenheimer. Right. Because all the other scientists are kind of like, yeah, uh, yeah, we work together, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I, he was I, a little shady. He was yeah, shady. Yeah, tr- really trusted. Or, you know, we expressed our discomfort with all this yeah. and, you know, we, no, we wouldn't. And then even uh, the colonel, played by Matt Damon. You know, he tries his best not to right. screw over Oppenheimer. But, you know, he's put in a position to say that based on the rules of the act that is now, I would not have hired him if it were today, you know. So everything was being shoved into Oppenheimer to make him look bad. But then having Hill come in to kind of save the day and stop Strauss from getting the nomination, not even the nomination, uh, the confirmation to be on the cabinet. Which effectively kills his political career, something that he was building toward his whole, this whole time. I think (laughs) it is a really good moment, Hill revealing that 
you know, he had this personal vendetta against Oppenheimer and people in the scientific community community don't support Strauss. It's all really good, really well played. And Mm. I love beyond all that, that the conditions were very similar to the way that Strauss skewered Oppenheimer, where this is not a trial. You cannot introduce other evidence. It's literally just what I am saying can kill the whole campaign. Exactly. And so it was very similar to the way that he dealt with Oppenheimer. And some of the things that I really liked were just his, like Strauss's, the entire story that he built up in his head, starting with, he said something to Einstein about me. Mm -hmm. And that being his whole, like he. He couldn't let it go. Could not let it go. And he ruminates on this for years and years. What did he say to Einstein? Because Einstein never looked at me after that and couldn't hold my gaze after that. And Alden's line that says maybe they were talking about something more important. Oof. Woof. <laughs> Got him. And so you good. get a version of what is more important that Nolan presents. And that, again, the finale sequence is really powerful it is where you have this meeting of these meeting of two great minds again they already know each other and he's talking oppenheimer's like do you remember when i showed you all of these calculations and we were scared that we were going to incinerate the earth and cause all this destruction and he said and einstein's yeah like what about it and he says i think we actually did yeah i think we actually set off a chain reaction. A chain reaction, yeah. And then you get these powerful visuals of what he imagined in the future. Like, you saw glimpses of it throughout the movie. Uh-huh. And now you get the full realization of what he imagines the world will become mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of what he set into motion. Right. And, yeah. Powerful way to end the movie, for sure. Yeah, and then I love how... Einstein says, look, we're all going to go through ups and downs. They're going to tear you down at some point. And when you rise again, it's not all of these awards and accolades that they're going to give you are not for you. It's for them. Yes. To make themselves feel better about what they did to you. Mm -hmm. And we get that shot. We get that shot of it actually happening. With Lyndon B. Johnson as president. Uh, and the wife, so um, Miller, <laughs> the the scientist, comes, shakes Oppenheimer's hand, tries to shake uh, Kitty's hand, and no, the sour face of like, ooh, I know what you did. <laughs> That's a ride or die bitch right there that because is. she because she stayed with him even after like the whole affair thing was stupid because they had started yeah they started as an affair, affair so yeah. anyway so but yeah yeah so I love that she was held a grudge for all that time yeah she wasn't gonna let it go like please just because like you're being awarded a medal and everything doesn't mean i forgot what you did no. to him Ooh, this code cold this cold. code i love it i do all right uh anything else you want to talk about <sighs> this we talked about the score right we mentioned it a little bit okay um, I appreciate every single meme on Barbie and Oppenheimer. Please send me more memes 
and TikTok, like I'm more than willing to watch these TikToks. Yes, so am I. Because I saw one on the other female physicist from the movie. Did you see it? Yes, yes. (laughs) She's got this really hammy line. Yeah, about, oh, they didn't teach typing in Harvard school or whatever. And then Oppenheimer's like, okay, let her through the gate and we'll put her in with these other guys like talking whatever, like theory or something. And then the second line that she has is about her uterus because they're worried about her reproductive organs and what the radiation will do and stuff. And it's just very funny. People find a way to make fun of it and I love it. Yes. Uh, I do like the line, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds from the Bhagavad Gita. Mm Mm-hmm the Indian text that he went to school and learned Sanskrit. I don't know if I like that they had, it was like a turn on for Florence Pugh. I know. Like I was like, really? This is where they're going to introduce the line? (laughs) Because I knew the line was going to happen in the movie somewhere. She like stopped mid coitus, walked over to the bookshelf, picked up the, and she was like, can you read this? And he was like, yeah, he was summarizing it for her. And then she just like mounts him and she's like, no, read it. And he gives this translation that haunts the rest of the movie. But tell me why she picked up where she left off after he was like, why? It's so disturbing. I don't know, man. Don't, don't. I don't I don't get it. I have so many questions. Anyway. There's a lot of questions for that. That is a different <laughs> episode. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, so Kenneth Branagh, love him as Niels Bohr. When I heard yes. the name Niels Bohr, I was having chemistry flashbacks. <laughs> because uh these names are real. These are real people yeah. that end up in our textbooks today. Mm-hmm. Uh, including Oppenheimer. Yep. Yep. So I don't really have anything else to add. It is a very good movie. Obviously, I recommend it. But is it rewatchable? Like you said, no. It's I don't tough. Think it is. Right. I, I I can't imagine, you know, your average movie goer to be like, yeah, I'm going to watch it again. It's 7 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Am I going to put on Oppenheimer? No. Am I going to put on Barbie? Oh, Hell yeah. Yes. That's most likely. Yeah, now, I will say that I have added one of the tracks from Oppenheimer to my movie score. Because Ludwig. Yeah, okay. Ludwig, of course. So, yeah. So that, of course. I yeah. love Ludwig. The one that changes it. tempo like 20 times yes, that or something. One. Yeah, oh, my can gosh. Can you hear the music is what it's, it's called. It's frightening. Yes, it is. All right. So that is it. We made it through Barbenheimer. We did it. We did it. And it was wow. fantastic. It was so much fun. Uh, I'm so glad that people showed up to the movies to go see these movies. It was so cool to see that. So now if you saw these movies, please let us know (laughs) on social media which one you saw first. uh, What were your thoughts on the movie? You can check us out at Always Critic Pod on our socials. If you are not subscribed to us on your podcast feed, go ahead and do that now. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, many more. Always the Critic Podcast. And if you've done all that, if you're a fan, consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash Pod For as little as $2 a month, you can support us. You get backlog of old episodes that are no longer on the feed. Check that out. Also, you get exclusive content on there as well. So, 
with that said that has been our episode i'm ken and i'm barbie and this has been the always a critic podcast